Hi, this is Steven Soderbergh. I'm here with screenwriter George Nolfi. Hello there. Who apparently worked on Ocean 12 with me. You know, one of the things I like about Warners is they let you muck around with their logos, which I always try to do. And I was trying to send a message here with this logo treatment that things were going to be a little weird in this movie, that it was going to be sort of psychedelic. I don't know that it came across that way, but that was my intent. Once they watched the movie, they knew. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. This is, I think, my favorite opening of the three films. We have a third one coming. But I don't remember where this came from. Was this part of... People should know that this movie was partially based on a script you'd written called Honor Among Thieves, which was about a competition between two master thieves. Where did this scene come from? I think this came afterwards. This wasn't in Honor Among Thieves. Okay. So this is when we started working on the idea of the backstory between Isabel and Rusty. Right. We had a very serious problem in trying to adapt Honor Among Thieves in that it was about the greatest thief in America and the greatest thief in the world comes and tries to take him down on his home territory. So we had to take that single protagonist character and get enough stuff for a, a group. A group, yeah. yeah. No, I know we went through a lot of machinations to do that. And I know that there were various versions of the film in which this wasn't the first scene. The layering in of the Rusty Isabel backstory, we played around with various versions of it. I know we had one version of it where... We started in Italy, where she sees Rusty for the first time. Right, right. And now that's in flashback. Yes, exactly. Although, at the end of the day, I was happier with this and felt it was a better way to set them up. But that's the trick, I think, with these these kinds of movies. I mean, the fun part is we get to play narratively. We can sort of be free about where we are and where we're going. But as we know from life, sometimes having lots of options can be the worst thing in the world. He streaks his hair, he has dandruff, everything. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. You know, having those extra men really paid off. Oh, you're just being modest. Are you coming to bed, baby? I'm just gonna have a shower. Don't let me keep you up. I always love shots like that where, for instance, Brad's jumping out the window and you can make it look like there was a 60-foot drop when in, was when in fact it was... five foot? <laughs> yeah, probably more like two, <laughs> which is why I froze him there. One other thing we can talk about is we were very conscious in our efforts to not make the same film again. And one of the ways in which we decided to forge new territory was, in essence, to make the sequel about a character who's not even in the first film, which is Isabel, Catherine's character. Yeah, I mean... She gets a little tiny bit set up there in the first scene, and then you don't really see her again. She doesn't really come in until about 30 minutes into the film, which is a pretty radical departure from conventional storytelling. But right from the beginning, we were talking about trying to really play in this film. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I felt if I were really smart, I'd explain that this was always going to be three films and that it was absolutely uh, part of the grand design to make the second film about a character who's not in the first film or the third film. But in point of fact, it kind of grew out of the idea of giving Rusty some sort of romantic aspect. You look at Rusty and you figure he must have some sort of personal life. What is it? And who would he be with? And of course, in Honor Among Thieves, there was a female character very similar to this that we kind of adapted. But I gather, you know, for some people, it was a gigantic digression. I mean, for us, it was a digression that we found interesting. But. I mean, one way to look at it is that the first movie is really about Danny trying to get Tess back, and the heists are just a f sort of foil to that overall goal. 
and Ocean's 12 flips out on its head. And the guys don't realize it for probably just about as long as they did in Ocean's 11 that really what Rusty's trying to do by having them go to Europe is get Isabel back. And then the goal even beyond that ultimately becomes getting Isabel, her father, back. Part of the trick in these movies as well is you have a lot of characters to service and you want to give them all the right amount of screen time. In this case, we had one issue that was tricky in that Bernie Mac, you know, had another commitment that was sort of falling in a similar time frame and we had to scale him back a little to accommodate it. Um, and, and he got ill, I think, at some point. Um, yeah, he right. He got very ill near the end of the shoot. Which was one of many sort of hurdles that cropped up during the shooting. We didn't know that until we had to sort of adapt on the fly, the other being finding out that Julia was, was pregnant. Yes. <laughs> yes, that was a, a little bit of an issue. I certainly felt that part of the fun of this movie would be seeing what everybody's been up to in the interim, you know, that that's a great way to reveal everybody's characters. If you put them in a situation where they can do whatever they want to do, what are they doing? Yeah, that was, I think, in our very first meeting. So I guess was you were doing Solaris, and it was the Solaris production offices. I, th I think we talked in that first meeting about introducing everybody and showing how they get captured by Benedict. Right. And we also, from a very, very early place, and I guess some of this is in Honor Among Thieves, we determined to just grind our protagonists down as far as they could possibly be ground down. Yes. No, we did, I remember talking very specifically that they had to fail basically throughout the whole film, right. that only in the last couple of minutes do they seem to succeed, but that the movie was really about failure and how you deal with failure and sure. people's expectations. And I don't know, that seemed like a fun sort of spine to hang all of this stuff on. It was fun to sit around and think of how can we belittle them uh, for two hours. <laughs> And that is, again, a place where it's a really 180-degree flip of Ocean's Eleven because Ocean's Eleven, at least, you know, I wasn't involved in Ocean's Eleven, but to my eye as a viewer, I never had any doubt that they were going to succeed from the beginning because they were just too cool for school and, you know, so we really, really flipped it here. Well, yeah, we tried. I mean, that's always the trick, is that everybody in this situation assumes that everything's going to be fine, so you have to keep... Coming up with ways, not to trick them, you want to play fair, but keep coming up with ways that you go, okay, now how are they going to, this looks really bad, how are they going to get out of this? Obviously, we also wanted to travel a bit. I mean, I certainly wanted to take the movie into another environment, another aesthetic environment, and Europe seemed like a good idea. I think partially motivated by, in, in Honor Among Thieves, the one of the thieves is not American. And I think that certainly got me thinking, let's go somewhere else. It's funny, I assumed that we were not going to make another Oceans movie until we went to Rome on this press trip to do publicity for Oceans 11. I'd never been to Rome before and found the city very arresting and just thought, this would be a great place to bring these guys. And then I started thinking about this idea that Benedict has found them all somehow and that they have to work off some sort of debt or he's going to turn them in or, you know. And then is it, a great start. It, was, it was not long after that that I read... Honor Among Thieves and felt, oh, then we can graft these two ideas together. And then we settled on Amsterdam. I think we were talking about going to Berlin, but it turned out that the second Born right, exactly. film was going there and we didn't want to see Matt running around Berlin in two films in a row. So right. we ended up with Amsterdam, which is, you know, a very, very visual city amongst other qualities. Yes. <laughs> so... To be clear, nobody was asking for a sequel. The studio wasn't asking for a sequel. None of the actors were asking for a sequel. This is something that I generated. And then you can 
absolutely be sure that after 12, nobody was asking for another one. And I was the one that went to the studio and went to the cast and said, I have another idea. I think it's an idea that'll close everything out and be fun to do. I get asked a lot. People assume because they're Ocean's movies that I must not be. How could I be as emotionally attached to them as other more serious films? And I don't know what they're talking about. I'm very invested in these. Sure, it's a lot of fun to make them. Yeah, they're tricky. The one I was involved in. No, they're tricky, but they're they're fun. Um, it's fun. It's, I don't find them fun day to day. I find them fun to look at when they're finished because they're sort of they're mouse traps and. When you're building the trap, you're just concerned that it's going to work at all. The pleasure for me is very fleeting. It's at the very end when it's all done and you can see it all finished. And then, you know, you put it out and it belongs to everybody else. Get up. Walk. I'd like to say a few words about commitment, about honor, about responsibility about a very special someone and admitting to her get up pull the chair out admitting to her in front of everybody that her wedding and that very special honeymoon trip in these introductions obviously my idea was to sort of set them up in single shots whenever possible i find them fun to watch Jesus, he's just a friend. You met him at the Mint, remember? Well, of course I am. You don't expect me to embarrass myself in front of a new friend by fine commercial. On a budget? <laughs> On a budget. Excuse this me? This is a shot that we did actually in California at the end of the day so that it would look like Miami at th in the morning. Right. And I'm sure everybody who watches uh, appreciates that. Yes. But I think we were both enamored of the idea of Yen becoming a sort of, you know, bling-heavy uh, music industry powerhouse or something. I don't know what he's up to exactly. I remember I was, uh, my initial idea for it, I was quite enamored of the endless pool or whatever. The pool, it looks like you're swimming. The infinity and you, pool, yeah. It, well, you pull back and then you realize it's a bathtub where the water is. Oh, right, that. right. That's right. He was going to be swimming in place and then we yes. pulled back and he was in a hotel somewhere. Yeah. That was probably just too expensive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> My dad grew up in East Orange, New Jersey, which is why I stuck that title in there. Um, you know, for all I know, it is the center of nail salon activity in New Jersey. I believe that. All it is. Let me break it down like a fraction for you about my man, Fred Bug Kelly. Fred Bug Kelly made skates out of whiskey bottles at his uncle farm in the early 1900s. Uh, that was over there in Nova Scotia. And I'm going to say... On a lot of these intros, we ended up doing a lot of taste because the timing was tricky. I know on the one with Casey and Scott, we were into the 20s, and I'm sure we were in the high teens on this one. And the Casey and Scott tracking shot, that was pretty early in the film, and I obviously knew you from working on the script, but I just started watching you on the set, and I was amazed at how much went into getting that tracking shot, and frankly, all these intros. Well, the good news is if you go in knowing, you know, I want to do these in sort of moving masters, all of these, because they're expositional, and I don't want to get into a cutting situation within these scenes, that at least solves, you've narrowed down the number of parallel universes a great deal, because you've decided I've got rules for this sequence. And then once you get there, like, for instance, this recording studio scene, you know, I'm looking at the environment, realizing 
there's a lot of depth here. There are reflections I can play with. That was a, you know how to how do I take advantage of this? And so these are fun to shoot. It's obviously in a strange sort of way a very efficient way to shoot because yeah. once you've got it, you've got it. Yeah. Speaking of efficiency, um, this was our first day. So this was the first day that I saw was Steven it really? shooting. I don't even remember. We got there and I was like, well, gee, I don't know how to quite behave on the set. I don't know what questions to ask, whatever. And basically by the time I'd even asked a few people what I should be doing, you were done. We were done before lunch and Greg came over and said, uh, Stephen, um, do you think we could leave something for after lunch just so we could have it on the report that we shot till after lunch? <laughs> And that includes a scene that's not in the film on the of Matt on the bench. Yeah. We shot two versions of that scene, mm -hmm. too. We wrote dialogue up. It's a scene where Matt's talking to an off-screen recruit that we reveal is somebody who's approximately, what, 10 years yeah, old? Yeah, a kid, yeah. When he says in the warehouse scene that's coming up, I spent about a million dollars in talent development, right. that was the joke there. Right. And it's not a joke anymore. Yes. understand? No. Mr. Benedict. Mr. Benedict. Mr. Be Oh, yes. <laughs> An old friend, a practical joker. Tell Mr. Benedict he's won this round, yes. Terry Benedict. <laughs> oh, Terry. She's looking at me from across the room, and she's crazy about me, I can tell, because she's been staring at me all night long. So suddenly, I just go up to her, and I grab her. Here's another visual joke, or an idea that's to some people's tastes and not others. I don't know why, but I always felt that Livingston was a frustrated stand-up comedian. And the idea of a comedian in a matador outfit just seemed like a good idea at the time. I know Eddie Jemison enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. He told me that uh, this actual situation happened to you, but that's probably not true. I, that's not true. <laughs> that is not true. And so that big sign behind him, I remember Phil Messina, our production designer, who's a huge part of all three of the Ocean's films, came to me. I said, you know, I want a big neon sign behind him and phil said well what's the name of the club and i said well I, i'm not sure but we've all been referring to this as the nightclub scene for three or four months why not just call it the nightclub scene right so that's one problem solved filmmaking is problem solving people ask you questions all day long and if you're able to answer them you wind up with a movie somehow very well anything on my health my hips are bothering please This? You couldn't see this? After the second call, I tried knocking, but he won't open I'll up. I'll handle it. I know him. Jesus Christ! Are you people retarded? I was desperate to have Topher Grace in here somewhere. You were going to put him in uh, no matter what. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we had he was in, in a very... We had various scenarios in which Topher would be in the movie. Love but that t-shirt, by the way. Your boyfriend wants me? Yeah, it's a good one. I saw a photograph of Paris Hilton with that yeah. shirt on, and I thought, Topher's got to wear that. I know for a while, there was an iteration of the movie in which Julia was not playing Julia, but was going to impersonate a princess that had some connection to the Romanov family, and that's where the whole egg, Fabergé egg idea came from. And at that point, I think when we were discussing the princess idea, Topher was going to show up in essentially the sort of Bruce Willis role as the complicating factor. Right, right. And then 
when we settled on the Julia as Julia idea, we decided we've got to find a real movie actor who, who would is understood to have some relationship with Julia. You have to instantly know that he would be able to bust her exactly. for the humor to work. And I asked Julia, well, who would this be? If you were going to pick somebody that you would feel comfortable with that knows you to be that person, she said, Bruce. And then we called Bruce. So it was an idea that had a lot of... Uh, there were a lot of people that weren't happy. Yeah, and we didn't settle on it until late. But we'll, we'll late. come back to that. Oh, there's lots to discuss about that. Out to your favorite car of all the 17 that you own, and as soon as you turned on the ignition. You got two weeks. Now, you told me that your wife said that he called it Ocean Eleven. Now, here are scenes, again, when you've got a lot of characters to cover and to deal with, and you've got a long dialogue scene that's very expositional. In this instance, I was consciously recreating a sort of compositional style and cutting pattern that we used at Ruben's house in the first film right. when they're setting up the plan and Danny's in front of the screen. In this case, for people who care about these things, we shot the movie in Super 35. This is a 27-millimeter lens, which became, on the first film, a sort of default lens for me. We called it the Palm Springs because that sequence that I just described in the first film was shot actually in Palm Springs and not in Vegas. Right. And it was the scene where I really determined that this is going to be our lens most of the time. So we just refer to it as the Palm Springs. Mm -hmm. So in this case... You know, we found this great space, and I would turn everybody loose and say, fall in. Let's see, you know, I wouldn't tell them, you got to be here, you got to I go, you guys know each other, fall in and see where you end up. Then based on that, I would start composing the shots, knowing that I need group shots, I need singles on everybody, I want to set up the geography of the space. And then I rely on Stephen Marioni to sort of make it seamless and basically tell him, if you can get through this scene without repeating a shot, I'll be really happy. I know that may not be possible, but in an ideal world, you know, try not to repeat shots. And this is, you know, pretty much as he put it together. They're fun to do, and at the same time, they can be sort of tricky. This was also early in the shoot in Chicago, right. and I think this was the first time all the actors had gotten together. That's true. It's the first time the group had been together since the first film. Yeah. Another sort of funny story from the early part of the movie is, you know, I'd been told... It's better be funny. I'll try. I'd been told, oh, you know, Stephen keeps to himself. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't talk about what he's doing. You know, don't ask him too many questions. Uh, you know, Who's telling he, you this? Oh, I'll Greg? never tell. Oh. <laughs> Multiple sources. Okay. And I was sort of like gingerly, uh, you know. This is after you got the memo about no eye contact. And <laughs> right. And, you know, I just mentioned to you in the writing process, you know, at some point I want to direct, so I might ask you some questions. And you're like, yeah, sure. I was like, gee, he doesn't seem very closed off to me. This was one of those times where I'd come up to you and say, now, what were you thinking in this shot? What were you doing? And you sort of explained a version of what you just said there. And then I started basically asking you anytime I had a question. So it was the best film school I could possibly hope for. And um, all those people were wrong. Well, <laughs> well, I may have been wrong, too. The tricky part of making these movies is that I don't like the storyboard and I don't like to tell, like, again, I don't like to tell the actors, you got to be here, you got to be there. I like to see it sort of evolve. So that comes to... 97, give or take. He didn't find us on his own. Someone helped him. Another thief. Well, there's nobody we know that would violate rule number one. What we do know is we need a job. We need a high-paying job. 
Well, now we're too hot to work anywhere in this country. So we go abroad. How about we go on to five o'clock? Good. Where are we going? Amsterdam. Amsterdam it is. Clock's running, guys. Let's go. I had never been to Amsterdam. I heard German girls are really hot. Amsterdam. Yeah. Don't tell Danny. Here's a scene between Matt and Brad that was... It's something that I do a lot, which is I reshoot during the shoot. Right. Because we're assembling as we go, and we identified... I remember you and I talking and discussing the fact that based on what we'd seen assembled, that we wanted to shore up the idea of Linus... Trying not, to grow. Being ambitious. Right. And maybe a little too ambitious. Right. And that there was a great opportunity here for some humor, and that they're sort of setting him up to play a joke on him. Or at least it's a situation where he's going to realize the hard way that he's not quite there yet. Right. We'd already shot the uh, scene in the, quote, coffee house right. where he totally fails. And we had shot the Cherry Jones scene, the reveal, where she says, oh, you know, did he pull Lost in Translation on you? But we felt that it wasn't set up well enough. And this was, if I'm not mistaken, this was the last day of shooting. And I believe I handed Matt and Brad pages somewhere like 45 minutes to an hour before they went and did this. And they just have so much trust in you and each other that they just didn't have any problem with that. Oh, yeah. They're in character. As a matter of fact, there's a story about being in character that I'm going to tell later that, oh, good. that will provide a fascinating glimpse into the psychology of... Uh, of one of the leads. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> or two of them, actually. <laughs> yeah. And on this movie, because there were so many moving parts and so many things to service, so many characters to service, so many sort of loops within loops narratively that I know you and I were constantly looking for ways to, I don't know if clarify is the right word, but at least feel like we set things up and paid them off properly. I think both of us would admit that it may be a movie that plays better on multiple viewings because there's a lot of information flying around and there are a lot of sort of narrative loops in it. And again, it is ultimately sort of about a character that isn't part of the group and wasn't in the first movie. Yeah. And yet there was an idea there that I think we both liked, which was this woman who has thievery in her DNA and is sort of struggling with that aspect because she's drawn to men who have that quality and yet she's... And she can't help herself. Yeah, and she's never quite acknowledged where that comes from or how it should be dealt with. Right, and often when something comes from inside you like that, that you're not comfortable with it makes you uh Act push out. it away yeah, yeah push it away very strongly and that was when i was talking to a couple of my friends what do you want to hear in a commentary and one of the things they said was well how does a script evolve and change and um from the honor among thieves script which started as a pitch that i developed with my friend and producing partner michael hackett and sold in like 2000 or something so it was before oceans 11 came out basically uh, i think I mentioned before is that was a single protagonist who is the greatest thief in America. And basically, Talur comes into America and starts stealing out from under him and humiliates him. And he is being chased by a woman who, in that case, was an FBI agent from a ritzy family. And what you find out at the end is what you find out here, that her father is this legendary thief, Lamarck, the greatest thief in like human history. And so basically, what we brought into this movie was the antagonist structure, right? right? I mean, the villain antagonist in Delore and the, like, Tommy Lee Jones and the fugitive antagonist who turns at the end in the Catherine Zeta-Jones character and then the Lamarck twist at the end. Right. And then we added in, we sort of blended in the Terry Benedict 
aspect of him being the one who found them, but we don't know how for a while. The fact that we're unemployable should never enter your mind. Otherwise, you're wasting your time and his. And ours. And his. And don't mention Benedict unless he does first. And if he does, tell him everything. Right. Stay on point. And don't forget the other thing I told you. About what? About listening. Just relax. Remember, we don't get this job, we're dead. Okay, yeah, Rusty, I tried calling you all of yesterday. So finally, she slams the vodka tonic down in the tray and says, Hey, maybe that's why I've been feeling so warm recently. (laughs) (laughs) so the business the business here's the infamous coffee house scene which um very fun to shoot very fun to shoot. If you're a fan of Schizopolis, then you probably like this scene. If you're not, then you probably don't. But I can only say as a director, anytime you can work with Robbie Coltrane, you should. We had a great time with him. And I think Matt, Matt's willingness to play the sort of... Rube. Yeah, is I, I find it incredibly admirable. He absolutely jumps off the cliff, is not worried about anything but what his character would be doing. And I love him in this scene. He's got the seven-second transatlantic delay. He it's, just can't put it together. It's fantastic in this. And so are George and Brad, by the way, when they laugh in his face. And Well, and I thought one of the things that I think I talked about this in the commentary of the first film, and certainly it's something that I'm very aware of in each of the films, which is when you have actors that are this generous toward each other and are so willing to share the frame, I think you should take advantage of that. And so much of these movies are about camaraderie and about a certain familiarity and the fact that they all care about each other. You know, you look at George and Brad, they're just sitting next to each other sharing a frame like that. There are a lot of stars that don't want to do that and that you're constantly having to isolate them. And you see movies with movie stars in which they look like they were in different zip codes when they were shot. And here I'm always, in essence, compositionally working back from the size of the frame in which I can compose the most number of characters. So in that case, let's say the two shot between George and Brad is, I know I'm going to isolate Matt, that Matt is the only character who's not going to have a piece of the other actors in the same frame because he's the one who's lost. Right. I know I'm going to have a two shot of Brad and George. The lens and the distance from them that looks best for that shot is now going to become the template for the rest of the scene, meaning I'm going to be that far away from Robbie Coltrane. I'm going to be that far away from Matt. Robbie's shots are all going to be overs because he feels connected connected to them them and is in control of the scene. And Matt, I'm going to isolate. These are the silly things that... You sit down and actually don't tell anyone because I don't have to tell anyone. And, yeah, because you don't have a DP on the set, so you just have the conversation in your head. Yeah, which can be good and bad. It means that we sort of move quickly, but it also means that there are a lot of people that don't know what's happening from moment to moment. But unless, that's what makes it exciting. Unless you have some writer tapping you on the shoulder after every shot saying, why'd you Why'd do you that? do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes, it's, sometimes you can't articulate why you're doing something other than that it feels right. And then sometimes you can't. 
after, Danny? It's a document. It's a very old, very valuable document. Yeah, what is it? A stock certificate. The first one ever issued from the first corporation on the planet. The Dutch East India Trading Company. It's only one of its kind. Only one of its kind. All right, what's the take? 2.5 million euro. Wait, each? No. Oh, oh, who negotiated this? Hey, stop. You know what? That's a lot of money to a lot of people. These scenes are very hard. In this case, my feeling was at the time that the sound of it was more important than the look of it. So that meant, in this case, rehearsing the scene over and over and over again to get that quality of overlapping and things being made up on the spot and that I was willing to sacrifice a... People saying certain, lines on camera. Yeah, I mean, a certain amount of design visually because I felt, in essence, this was more about how things sounded than the way they looked. This is a set, by the way, that was built by Phil Messina on the lot at Warner Brothers. I think a really terrific set. And is lit entirely with practical lamps so that I could point in any direction. And I remember we rehearsed it over and over and over again. We had two cameras running by the time we started shooting it, and we did a handful of takes, and that was that. And in essence, for me, the sloppier, the better. This was the one I think you shot one way, you didn't like, and you went back in. I think I think this was probably about the hardest, the scene that for this you This was gave one you of the, the scenes trouble. I had trouble with. I had shot it initially in a way that was much more like the warehouse scene, right. where there were sort of static very, yeah, static compositions, a certain lens length on everybody, and... It just felt dead. Right. I mean, it just felt dead. I don't know how else to describe it. And again, during the shoot, we scheduled a time to come back and do it again. Unfortunately, I think this was when Bernie got sick. Right. This was the. And he couldn't. Right. So he was to, in the first version of the scene, and then he's in the bathroom in the scene right. because because um, he have was him. literally in the bathroom. Yeah. But you know that's frustrating. You always. You know, things go better with Bernie. You always want him around if you can have him around, but we just weren't able to do it. We got a great ad lib from, from Elliot Gould Ruben, yeah. by having him in the bathroom, so it was not a total loss. Two things I think I can mention about this that I noticed you do a lot. One is this idea of trying to shoot with natural light that you and Jim Planet have perfected going back to well, traffic. We've or perfected before. it, but we have we have a plan. Well, it certainly makes it nice for the actors because um, they don't have, not to, worry have to worry about, about it. tripping yeah. over lights and... And the other thing is that, and this is one of those annoying questions that I asked you all the time and maybe helped you formulate, you know, saying this in a very sort of concise way, which is that in these movies in particular, you want every scene to feel different than the last. You also don't like to repeat shots if you can. And the only time you're going to want something that is visually similar is if it's echoing something from earlier on. So in the case of that scene in the Amsterdam hotel room, you did something that was consciously ultimately came to doing something that was consciously very different than the warehouse scene where it was static and on sticks and that one you just saw was handheld and all over the place with energy right Show me them specs. I've been doing this since I'm 12 years old. You're micromanaging. You gotta find people you could delegate to, otherwise, you'll never have a life. Again, here's a great shot of a set that Phil Messina built, which is sort of based, you know, obviously on an aesthetic that's very 
prevalent in Amsterdam. Also, for just the Amsterdam scenes, we were shooting on a Fuji negative, which has a different palette than the Kodak and tends to accentuate colors that, to my mind, are sort of common in Amsterdam. It has a great sort of, I don't know, yellowish-brown earth tones in the Fuji stock tend to be much more prevalent, and it downplays things like reds and blues. So I was trying to, you know, have a different look for Amsterdam than for Rome. We occupy, it cannot be done. All right, who else have you called? What about the guy from the Bulgarian? Nagel spoke with him. Anything? A lot of ideas, none of them any good. This was a shot that was really fun to set up. I knew I wanted to sort of show off the city a little bit, and we had a bit of dialogue to go here. And we were trying to shoot at magic hour here because the city is so beautiful at that time of day. This was a big day for Greg, the AD. I've got two cameras going here. We've got the one on the dolly, and I've got the B camera set up on a long lens for when they stop. I have to say, this was one of those days you always wonder when you're going to shoot on location like this with known actors whether or not the public is going to cooperate. There were, I would guess, 2,000 people watching the scene be photographed. No one made a peep. No one made a sound while we were shooting. They would applaud after the takes were done, which after, I think, this one, we shot a few as well. And I'm sure they probably regretted clapping after each take when we hit take 12. But they were so polite. They were just so polite in a way that a lot of us felt you'd never... If you were in America, there'd be some guy with a radio or a leaf blower or something trying to get $500 out of the production. Well, they have coffee shops there and not here. Yeah, people were pretty (laughs) chilled out. I just wanted to make the point that in that scene on the bridge, Brad gets the idea about tilting the house from seeing the gears of the the drawbridge, drawbridge, which that would be vintage Steven Soderbergh in terms of its subtlety because, you know, it's just... it's just. uh, Well, now they know. Yeah, now they know. Now they know. We can't till the whole house. They did it with the Leaning Tower of Pizza. Exactly. Thank you. It took 300 men over two years to do it. There's 30 pylons. Cut them, insert the jacks, and crank away. It's really our best plan, guys, considering it's our only plan. Crank for how long? Like I said, it's our only plan. This is an idea, the lifting of the house, that when you and I decided we were going to go to Amsterdam seemed like a fun, organic idea just because of the way the city's built. And that we'd had a lot of conversations with people and seen buildings that had to be shored up or... And while we were there on the script scout, we actually sat down with some people and said, you know, how would you do it? How does this happen? And they explained it to us that all these... You put all these jacks underneath and you have to... And and we decided that would be... um, a weird, funny movie idea. Yeah. Again, interior of a boat built by Phil. Just really beautiful and detailed. We have an underwater shot here, which is rare for me because I hate... Uh, well, I can't swim. So I, don't, I never want to shoot anything that involves water. I mean, I can... But I, you were down there. <laughs> I was uh, I was nearby. I was nearby. That's um, on the uh, Warner Brothers lot in the tank, right? Yeah, yeah. We shot this in the tank. And we had... Uh, you know, it's one of the few times I'm forced to use a video assist, which I try not to use if I can help it. One of the other things that I was happy with that we came up with was this transition coming up where we set up this scene. It's all ready to go when we cut from the trigger to meeting Isabel, which right. is, you know, as you said, now we're... 25 minutes into the movie. And I think it's a good intro for her. Yeah. 
It's a great cut. I think the lifting of the house thing is something. I've had a couple people <laughs> try and track the logic of this about wait, so they can't see. I know it works, but I get confused sometimes when I'm trying to describe why they have to do that. Because they need line of sight to be able to shoot their crossbow bolt through the window. And there's something about they can't just chip away the uh, thing that Basher's looking over. They have to lift the house instead. Or I don't know. I know we talked about it. I just want everybody to know that wasn't an arbitrary decision on our part. That even when we're wrong, we think about it for a long time before we make the wrong decision. Which make them extremely difficult to catch. The greatest thief of all time was, without question, Gaspar Lamarck who either died in Portugal in 1988, or in Hong Kong in 1996, or he's still alive. We may never this know... This is The Hague, right? We're in The Hague? Right. This is the Richard Meyer... This is a design hall, by, right? Yeah. Uh, designed by hall. Richard Meyer. It's a beautiful, beautiful building. One totally irrelevant piece of trivia in that shot that we saw of the guy running, Johan, running to her, and we're sort of tracking through this grid of wires. That grid of wires was put up because people were jumping off of the various perches, and uh, it became such a problem that they got Richard Meyer to come in and design this grid that goes over all the open areas so that people can't climb over. Just really, when I found that out, I couldn't believe it. It would seem to be... It didn't strike me as a space that would make you want to jump. But then again, I don't work there. So Another thing to say about Isabel's introduction, she's talking about her father, Lamarck, as the greatest thief of all Although time. Although she doesn't know that. Although she doesn't know that. And she is talking about the Night Fox, Talor, who becomes their sort of main, their bet noir, if you want to stick with the French. Absolutely. And another sort of interesting thing about that is we did a lot of rewriting on the set. And I remember I was working on that long speech for Catherine the night before and I thought well for once I mean I can just put the paper in front of her she can read it it's a speech and I told her that and she's like uh no I actually like to memorize the whole thing I think I do a better job that way I was like ah (laughs) no break (laughs) yeah right when can I speak to Mr. Vandervoude uh probably tomorrow he's heavily sedated we can't figure out how they disabled the alarm. We thought that maybe they tried to short it out somehow. No, that would have triggered the system and damaged the circuits. Well, then, then I don't know how they got in. They had the code. Someone other than the owner must have known it. On the water swear that that's impossible. He programmed the last nine steps of the system himself. He said it and never left the house. This again. hairstyle is one that Catherine came up with. And I liked this cut and the trench coats. I thought it was, you know, I've often described these movies as the most expensive episode of a 60s television show ever. That's the way I look at them in terms of how they should be shot and performed. And this to me plays right into that. You know, I look at her here and she stepped out of, you know... 1967 London. It's really... The man from Uncle or something? Yeah, yeah. I just think she looks great in this stuff with that hairstyle. And here's a, you know, for anybody who's wondering whether or not Catherine is as pretty as she seems to be, the shot there and the shot that we're going to return to after this little mini flashback, the camera is 13 inches from her nose. Right. And there are very few people that can withstand that kind of scrutiny, and she can't. 
This is where the movie gets really complicated. <laughs> well, it certainly begins to, uh, you know, other layers are opening up again. So we're in a flashback here of Isabel and Rusty's meeting, which takes place prior to the opening scene of the film, right. for those of you who are tracking these things. Right, because in the opening scene of the film, they're boyfriend and girlfriend, and this is where they met. Yes. And for trivia buffs, that is the pantheon in the back. Jerry uh, got us a lot of locations that it's very difficult to get under normal circumstances. There's no question. And on the streets of Rome, you know, we had lots of people watching us, and nobody ever disrupted the shooting. We never had any problem with security. We had people say, when you go to Italy, forget about meeting your schedule. You're never going to get out of there alive. And we had absolutely no problem in Italy. Named after this guy, brilliant guy, Max Schumann. Then he did it in Istanbul in 1973. What is it? It's where the crossbow bolt hit. There's Catherine again. Beautiful shot of Catherine. So maybe just to track the logic of it for people. If we must. She realizes what happened because she finds the mark that the crossbow bolt made. She knows that the only and, thief that but knows would about know how to do special. this yes, yeah. would be Rusty. Because she told them about it. Exactly. Yeah. Which uh, I think which that's is, super clear. Well, you know, we made the film. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, no. Well, they do. Who? The Americans. Now we go into, again, another little mini flashback to see how they did it. This was one of those situations where I'm talking to Kevin Hannigan, the effects person, and saying what's possible, and he came up with he, that. He yeah. came up with this. He's like, well, they could, if you did have a crossbow bolt there, you could send this thing on. It's a keypad that fits over the keypad, and it would do this. And it actually worked. Like, Kevin had that thing works, works yeah. yeah, remotely. It was kind of nice. I shot this little mini flashback sequence in high def, by the way, not on film, for no real reason. Just interested in uh, trying it out. Actually, there was a reason. I was shooting in very, very low light and wanted to see, wanted to have it, you know, give it a little different texture. So we cranked up the gain on the HD. What? Oh, God. Oh, now we have a flashback within a flashback right. coming up, which is always fun. And it's really Catherine's, not even a flashback, it's Catherine's mind's eye. She has been able to Catherine piece this Catherine is imagining together. what must have happened, exactly. And the fact that she can not only imagine what must have happened, but then imagines a flashback within what she imagines, I think, is a testament to her mental prowess. She's not just beautiful, she's smart. She's super smart <laughs> and complicated. She's a very nonlinear person emotionally. I think that's what we're trying to say here. That is. In arriving second, Mr. Ocean, you have joined a long line of people who have worked very hard and risked a great deal only to get somewhere second. Now, in essence, we're meeting the Night Fox, who has been mentioned. He has been mentioned uh, a couple times, and I think we're... Uh, God, we must be 50 minutes into the film now. Are we? No. God, it feels we're pretty, like... We're pretty... We're feels like a hundred... We're, uh, yeah, I think we're 55 minutes into the film. Now, we're playing off, we, we have to admit here, we're playing off a very well-worn stereotype, which is the French 
antagonist who thinks he's uh, smarter and better than everyone else. And in this case, I don't he know is. why. Well, <laughs> I, you, I'm not going to sit here and try and parse why this cultural stereotype exists. Only that it does, certainly within movies, and we're taking advantage of it, basically. What's this information going to cost me? Don't worry, nothing. Nothing. Who do you think you're dealing with? Nothing costs nothing. And this information is definitely worth something. Let's just say our interests are temporarily aligned. So here's our little flashback within a mental flashback. It makes no literal sense, but it's certainly uh, very helpful information. This is something that we shot right after the end of principal photography. We went back. We sort of had the idea for it and then stuck it at the end of the schedule. So now what you're learning is that Talor dimed them to uh, Benedict, and then he will eventually... Yes we, have, to we Isabel. <laughs> yes, we haven't figured out how Talor discovered who they were, but that's coming. Also, I very much wanted to, as we've done in the third film, to continually sort of root Terry Benedict at the Bellagio in his office, you know, that this is his command center. With his climped behind him. Yes, exactly. certainly hope not. So what about the information? Okay, it's on your desk. He was here around 3.30 this morning, I can tell. On this film, Milena Cananero, double Academy Award winner, was designing the costumes. And these are tricky jobs. You've got to service a lot of different characters. They've all got to have a distinct look. Everybody has ideas about how they should look. And in this case, she was coming off another film that had gone a little bit over schedule and her prep was really cut into. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think I was mostly concerned that Catherine looked great. And the guys can sort of fend for themselves. Again, here's a scene where I'm very consciously trying to figure out a way to organize it into one shot. I've got some interesting layers in terms of reflections going on and was hoping at all costs to avoid a situation where I'm into coverage. You know, and I think it was a fun idea that she comes in and breaks this guy with one Instantly. word that we never hear. It's a very economical way to see yet again how good she is. Yes. There used to be... I cut the tail off of this. There used to, The shot used to continue, panned over from her to the two cops, and the one turns to the other one and says, I'm sorry, did you say something? But, you know, you got to keep these things moving. One of the four days we had Bernie Mac. <laughs> yes, in Amsterdam. That shot of Catherine is stolen from months later because she was not able to be there when we did the rest of that. You often, on movies like this, find yourself in those situations where you're picking up shots weeks and weeks later and having to match them. But I remember that day specifically, we had, I had the Avid Express on my laptop and hooked up a tap to the camera, recorded the shot into my computer, and then cut it into that sequence just to make sure that it was matching in terms of light and composition. Oh, and that was one of the times when new technology is very helpful. This is one of my favorite scenes. We're just grinding them for Well, again, yeah, it's an opportunity to grind our guys into the ground. She just gets the best of them over and over and over again. Again, a scene where I decided to go handheld, be a little looser with the style that I might normally 
be. There's only... Um, what do you mean by that, Lucer? Well, I felt like since she's a cop, I'm often shooting her handheld, I guess, because it just gives that sense of being stalked or pursued. I don't know. I just remember thinking I want to shoot... When she's on the case, I want to shoot her handheld a lot. And you'd shot the guys in this room handheld when they were planning yes. the floor, so... Yes. Of course, you've been seeing plenty of me, haven't you? I like this one. I call it Thief Fella Mode. There's the second little reference to his phone on the... Uh, exactly. Exactly. Table. This scene I had a lot in terms of how I wanted to cover it. The scene that's coming up with the guys discussing what just happened was one of those days where I wasn't quite sure how I wanted to do it, and I ended up sending people away. And I ended up shooting it in a way that I don't think is that interesting, but I couldn't find another way. I was never, I don't feel like I ever really got it properly and ended up feeling like, well, if the guys themselves are okay, it's a nice set. Jim did a great job of sort of coming up with a practical lighting situation that works, that looks nice. And I just decided this is, I got to shoot this thing and keep going. Like, I can't just sit here and stall forever. But I remember... We had two days to shoot this scene and the scene that follows it. And we shot this, and I started staging the scene that's coming up and sent everybody home that day and said, come back tomorrow morning because I need to think about this some more. So, again, I think I was looking for – initially I was thinking it was going to be on sticks or on dollies or something, and I decided to stay with the handheld. Bought with a fraudulent credit card. From that point on, well, there's only one, maybe two great nail salons in Amsterdam. And you lied to us. Yeah, and to me. Well, Frank knew. Frank knew you were in touch. And as you can see, it's not a profoundly interesting series of shots, but it was, uh, I don't know, it's kind of stuck. You have those days. It's like Chief Dan George and Little Big Man, when he goes to lay down and he's supposed to die or like the gods are supposed to take him and it doesn't happen and he says to Dustin Hoffman, well, sometimes the magic works and sometimes it doesn't. He gets up and they walk away. That's, this, was, <laughs> this is one of those days. Your pictures are going to be in every police station in Europe. Nobody looks at them. Nobody but cops. Detectives. There's a lot of information in this scene, so, you know, it probably well, I think helps that was that probably shot. Yeah, I mean, I think I was probably at the end of the day thinking, don't overdo it because there's, yeah, there's a ton of shit here that... Um, Trying to do this in a single setup, but moving the camera around like you did the intros to the guys would have been really uh, problematic. Wrong. Yeah. Just wrong. This is where you basically get in a sort of subtle way that her father was a thief. Which explains her attitude toward all of these guys. Right. I bet he couldn't say that with a 45 in his mouth. No, guys, you're missing the silver lining here. And she gave us a name, didn't she? Mm-hmm. The knife. That's a great shirt Brad's wearing. It's the kind of shirt I could never... Fair... The thing is, he can wear anything. Well, he wears that in real life. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, I remember while we were shooting, this was another thing we sort of added to make sure that it was clear that she's got his phone, there are numbers in it that are going to be very, very damaging. Mm-hmm. 
series of shots of uh, there's Yeroon of them waiting for them to come out was something I picked up in post also to make it clear that they know that she's seen these three people right. and that they're waiting for those three people specifically. The putting Yen into the bag thing, I remember in the script stage, we played out even further. He was gone for oh, yeah. almost the whole film. And, 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 and Jerry I, and said, you can't do that. from Jerry. Yeah, yeah. Jerry, <laughs> Jerry said, we can't do that. So we had him show up. I still think it's a fun optical effect to see him get into that bag. It's oh, great. There. This is Hanging. the Arsenal, as they say in Europe, football team. Right. We would call it soccer here. And I've had a lot of people from the UK express displeasure with the fact that we used Arsenal because they're very rabid fans over there, and I guess a lot of them have issues with Arsenal. All I can say is we put out feelers to several different clubs, and Arsenal didn't hesitate. They came back and said, we would love to take part in this, and we'll send you whatever you need. And so I got a free cap out of it. It's nice. Diaz. D-I-A-Z. It's a black duffel bag. Mm-hmm. The team's in Rotterdam. Their bag's in Brussels. He's the modern man. Disconnected. Frightened. This is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Just it. this discussion seems to me... I look at it as a sort of prototypical Oceans scene. It's sort of digressive, but that's... It's all about the relationships. Yeah, they, 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 you get a sense of their characters based on this discussion. Nothing about the plot, really. No, yeah. no, no, not really. And you were supposed to have a train, but the train broke. The train did break. The train was supposed to show up at the end of the shot with Matt and Brad that's coming up. And they just couldn't get the thing working the way we needed it to. So, um, which is even better to me because now we have a train station scene that doesn't even have a train in yeah, it. Yeah, which is which. Yeah. Other thing that happened here, I was sitting in the sort of central area. There's a little cafe, and I was working on the script as I was most days. And I went out to ask you something you were doing because I wanted to connect it up with something later. And I came back and. The script was gone. The computer was still there, but the script... I don't know if I ever told you this. No. The script was gone, and it wasn't on my desktop. It wasn't in the... Your like, printed script. No. The script in my computer oh. was gone. Ooh. And I was like, okay... First, I just, you know, I almost died. And then about three seconds later, I was like, somebody has to have pulled a prank on me. And I looked over, and Matt Damon, of all people, could not hold it together. He just couldn't keep a straight face. All the other actors that were back in there in the, were, were yeah, able to totally yeah. straight face. And Matt was just like, <laughs> and they had run over. He's a terrible in the, actor. Yeah, exactly. I take it back. He's a terrible actor. Wait, why not? Look, it's not my nature to be mysterious, but I can't talk about it, and I can't talk about why. Now here's a case. If you're on a set with George Clooney, see Brad picks up the bags there. As you can imagine, on take one, those were filled with sandbags. Right. Because <laughs> that's just, if you're going to have to pick something up in a scene and George is around, something's going to go wrong. <laughs> now, Brad, I hinted at this before, Brad came up with a very interesting practical joke for George that I'll set up when it's relevant. This is a good time to mention the score. This is one of my favorite cues in the movie. David Holmes, along with Phil Messina, is such an integral part of all three films. And when I was doing press for Bubble, and I would have 
uh, journalists sit down and the first thing out of their mouths would be, what the hell was up with Ocean's 12? What were you thinking? And, I, and I'd say, well, what do you mean? You didn't have any fun? They said, no. I said, well, I can tell you this. David Holmes' score in that film is worth the price of a ticket, even if you ignore everything else about it. I just think it's a great, great score. Again, it's such a... I can't imagine the films without these scores. I mean, David just seems to understand what is needed in a totally intuitive way. Our converse, What David does, which is really interesting, he's a music supervisor and the composer. He'll send me, as we're starting out, boxfuls of existing music that he thinks is going to sound like the movie sounds that I can use to sort of temp with and get a feel for. Then David comes in, you know, and starts working on the score himself. And in some cases, invariably, there's one or two instances in each of the three films where David has found a piece of music that works so well that he'll say, I think we should buy that. It works so well that I'm not going to be able to duplicate what it does. Here's an example. Here's a song that David picked, the French pop song that he gave me in this little kit. You put it up against this sequence, how are you going to top it? It sounds like the movie, it's in French, it's just got the right vibe, and David's totally right to say, you you know, we should plan on buying this. Father was a French industrialist, mother was Italian nobility. He never met her, but he inherited her title. The bad news is he's rich, he's bored, and he's talented. The really bad news is he was trained by Lamarck. What? Oh, no. This is not good. With V. Lamarck, Gaspar Lamarck. That's the one. Well, we're doomed. No, we're not doomed. Come on, he's one guy and he's French. Yeah, before we get too impressed by this... This is a fun montage to do. We shot some of it in prep. We started in April, so it must have been in March. So there are shots here that were done over periods of months and months, depending on the schedule. Some very fancy cars there for Vincent to drive. But again, we're just setting up to lure as somebody uh, the baddest of the badass he has it all <laughs> he can do it all and he has it all wait no no hang on the prado museum in 97 that was moretti Everyone he knows is that. moretti it's one of his aliases okay in the interest of time i'll skip to my favorite in 2002 he stole the king of morocco's 200 foot these yacht. scenes Toulouse villa take place in what used to be the family home of the director lucino visconti i'd read some reports that said this was clooney's yeah, house, no. which wasn't true, but sounds like a good story. And of course, that trumps the truth every time. But this was Visconti's house. It's really spectacular. It was called Villa Urba, I think, which is his mother's name. He was born there. He died there cutting his last movie. So I think all of us felt like it had a good cinema mojo. And it's pretty spectacular. I misspoke earlier in saying uh, how far in Isabel was introduced, but is, we're about 55 minutes into the film now where, are we? where we introduce Tallur. Tallur which, which is, a, you know, again, it's a big avenue to open up halfway through the movie. But I think we felt, again, that these movies in our minds lend themselves to sort of funky uh, narrative twists, you know. I think people are more forgiving if you're making a comedy because if they're entertained and they're laughing, then they'll go with it. I think so, Danielle. Perhaps I should uh, explain to you why I'm tormenting you like this. I'd like that. Mm -hmm. Well, you see, last month I was in Portugal to see my mentor. A mark. Indeed. A very loud and annoying American businessman was there the same day. He worked for a big insurance company. He's the one who suggested... Oh, here's where we find out how Tallur 
track these guys down. This is Talora, the back of Talora's head and Mark behind the ropes there. Little visual joke. And Jerry Weintraub, our producer. And there'll be an echo of this in Ocean's 13. We'll come, to, we'll come to find out that this character that Jerry's playing is Denny Shields, that he feels terrible about mistakenly outing the guys in front of Talora. Did you give him lines this time? I did give Jerry lines this time, and he handled them very well. Better than me. And he answered that it was impossible to know for sure. So I thought about that for like three weeks in a row, day and night. And then suddenly I realized that he was actually right. It is impossible to compare one theft to the other. Huh? So I guess the conventional narrative structure, you would essentially introduce your protagonist very early on, first five minutes. So you would have introduced Isabel very, very early on, although you can argue that the movie's about her, but she's not really the protagonist. That's another thing that's odd about the movie. But you would introduce everybody early on. You would introduce their problem very early on, and you would introduce the villains or the antagonist very early on. We sort of break all those rules. So Isabel comes in 30 minutes in the... Talora antagonist comes in 55 minutes in. Well, essentially, I mean, Terry Benedict in this case functions as this Trojan horse, a narrative Trojan horse. We think he's the antagonist. As right. it turns out, he's got another antagonist hidden inside of him. Right. Which, again, we thought was a fun idea, but then and another we were spending a lot of time in a room together without, you know, a lot <laughs> of oxygen. sandwiches. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing is the MacGuffin has not even been introduced yet. Actually, it's introduced right here, right. which is the egg. Right. So now you're over an hour into the movie before you know what everybody's after. So I have to take the heat for coming up with this particular... I don't know why I'm obsessed with these Fabergé eggs. I don't own one, but I'm... But the story would be good if you did, so let's, yeah, let's stick to it that you do. <laughs> it's just... I'm fascinated by Russia. I'm certainly fascinated by the Romanov family. These eggs I just find really interesting because in this case, you know, it's the coronation egg given to Nicholas and Alexandra. So this is one of my personal preoccupations, you know, shoehorning its way into a movie. So that's my fault. The replicas were pretty beautiful. They looked really good. Rusty's phone. Who is this? Nicole, who's this? Nagel. And here we go, introducing another character. We've seen him before briefly, but now the effect of Rusty losing his phone is starting to appear on screen. Eddie Izzard, somebody I've always liked, was very, very happy that we figured out a way to get him into the movie. And is he in, he's in 13, right? He is very much in 13. He's a great guy. And tell him if he wants it tomorrow, it should cost him more than double. Tell him this thing is beautiful. We fool the bloody Romanovs themselves. And tell him I'm being a nice guy. And tell him he dresses like a gigolo. I was desperate to get that line in there <laughs> to explain why Brad dresses the way that he dresses. That idea of sort of calling out something. I knew a director once who'd cast a woman in a movie, and when they looked at the movie, they determined that her voice was strange. And so he went back and shot a scene where two other characters discuss what a strange voice she has, which I always thought was a really elegant solve. So that was what I was doing there. This has a little bit of a greenish tint, that last scene. Was that fluorescent lights or...? 
Yeah, that was a real shop that existed below ground on a Rome street, not unlike the one we're seeing now. Phil Messina had found it on a scout. And we went down there and almost all that stuff that's hanging on the walls and the way that all was lit was very much the way it was when we walked in. We just added a few things around to make it look like Santa's workshop. The air down there, I can't even... Whenever anybody would move something and the dust would come up, it smelled centuries old. I just thought it was so beautiful that we had to shoot there. Yeah, that was one day I wasn't on set. I think I was locked in a hotel room. Cranking out pages. Agent Lahiri. A 1077 is not a small thing, unless you can tell me what they are after. There is no point in discussing it. So here we are. We capitulated to Jerry and had Yen arrive finally. Which, you know, that's probably a good call. You kind of have to capitulate to Jerry every once in a while. Well, he's got, when Jerry says something like, I don't like it, for instance, this idea of like having Yen disappear for the whole film and turn up at the end. If Jerry comes in and says, I think that's a bad idea. Like, I hate the person who would do that to me. Right. Like the filmmaker. I take that seriously because yeah, if he's got an issue like that, there probably is something to be fixed. Because Lamarck stole it in 1980 when 23 others failed. Because the Night Fox is trying to prove that he's better than Robert Ryan and his friends. This is ridiculous. You say the egg will be stolen. Then you say Lamarck already stole 24 years ago. Here is another scene that's worth unpicking for people or peeling back some layers. She is giving the information to us and to this police captain that the reason that the egg is the thing that Tulor wants to compete over is because it's going to be the way that he can show his mentor, Lamarck, the greatest thief of all time, and Isabel's father, we don't know yet, that he's the best because Lamarck is the only person in history who ever stole it. And then Lamarck's wife, Isabel's mother, who died at the beginning of the movie, forced him to give it back. So that's the kind of layered in there thing, but becomes very important. And then a layer beneath that is this 1077, which he says, I don't want to sign this for you again because when you were doing the Bulgari job, which is, of course, what Rusty did did yeah. and what uh, you didn't make any arrests she didn't make any arrests because she knew that it was Rusty who was doing the job so she had requisitioned the 1077 as a requisition order basically for a bunch of Italian cops and he says I don't want to do this for you again because last time I was humiliated you took all my men you didn't you didn't make any arrests and if you make the connection it's because she didn't want to arrest Rusty. Rusty and there's a scene later that talks about that which is also one of my favorite scenes in the movie the scene where she points the gun at him right We'll have to risk it. We'll put him in disguise. Now, here we have a scene coming up again. Big dialogue scene, a lot of people. My idea was to slowly work my way out. Again, not repeat a shot. Work my way out from the model. Gradually phase in the group. Although, in this case, I always have the focus on the foreground, on the model. I remember shooting these shots while everybody was at lunch, all the shots of the model. But I'm sort of gradually working my way around the room, setting up the geography, and getting further and further away as I cut. That's neither here nor there, other than to say, this is one of those scenes where you show up and you think, how do, you know, how do I make this interesting? You know. It's about the model, so the actors can be out of focus in a way. You know, it's about what's happening on that model, what they're describing. Right, and we've never been in this location before, so I'm trying to think of an interesting way of establishing it. 
I don't mind bringing the set to a stop to figure out the best way to do something because invariably if you figure out how to do it once this took me a while to decide that's how I want to do it once I decided that it went very very quickly right. like I guarantee you that whole scene from beginning to end took me three hours right. it probably took me an hour to determine exactly how and then mark off with a viewfinder here are all the angles we're going to shoot right. and then there's you know there's a lot of dialogue for people this is Isabel it's Johan. I just set a six o'clock meeting for you with an André Simon who says he had four paintings stolen from his house in Lake Como. Uh-huh. And where was this? Sometime Friday. He's missing two Monets, a Turner, and a Dugas. Which Dugas was it? Blue Dancers. Here's one thing I think we should have done a little differently in that she's getting this call now that Tallur is now going to dime them about the painting being stolen in his house right. just to make their lives worse. Right. What we ended up doing later, though, is the person that comes to see him says that he works for Tallur. And I think in retrospect, we should have had him show up in that disguise, but say that he was Francois Tallur. Because right. she doesn't know that Francois Tallur is the Night Fox. Right, that's right. Yeah. And I think we... We got a little too... Uh, complicated. Yeah. Yeah. By having it in person. Because I think everybody knows that that's Vincent. I'm yeah. pretty sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but in retrospect, I think we should have had him say, I'm Francois Tallur. There's no reason for him not to. You got my message. Who's that sexy phone voice? Very early Bond. What message? The message I left with sexy phone voice. Nicole, on your mobile. Got something going with Gunter? Am I in? Here's where the rest of the group realizes that Rusty's phone is has it? been stolen by Isabel. Yeah. And that is, of course, a... It's a problem. Well, it also tells you what kind of a person she is, which sets up the scene I was talking about before where she sticks the gun in his face. She has thievery in her DNA. She made a nice lift of the phone, so she had to steal to catch the thief. Right. So, so who's got my money? Who has got my bloody money? Again, Here another. Is. This is the scene I'm yeah, talking about. Another yeah. great set by Phil Messina. This was all shot in Burbank. I'm giving away the big secrets here. Again, Catherine looking great. Nice clothes. I love this scene. My only struggle with this scene, I didn't have any problems in terms of figuring out how we should shoot it, but it was one that in post was tricky. I went back and forth in terms of having score under it, and I opted not to have score under it. Chirping birds. I got a lot of birds, uh, Italian birds, authentic <laughs> Italian birds. But I went back, and I'm still not sure what the right call was, whether I should have had something under here or not. It's hard to set up a situation in an Oceans movie where you should be taking a dramatic scene really seriously because right. the movies just aren't serious. On the other hand, every time I tried to put score under it, it robbed something from them. I don't know why. Maybe I just couldn't find the right piece of music, but it pulled something away from them, the two of them, and I decided to let it go. I think you made the right decision because I do think this is the place where you make the emotional connections you need for the end to work. Right. I think music's one of the most abused aspects of movies today, and I certainly try to be very, very careful about when I'm using music and how I'm using it. The good news is in the Oceans films, it tends to be pretty obvious where you should be using score and where you shouldn't. And again, you're never in a situation where 
you're using music to really shore up the emotional part of the film. More often than not, you're using it to create more excitement because it's part of a sequence in which there's a lot of activity. Right. It helps you bridge things. Yeah, absolutely. You can end up making connections that aren't necessarily there. Why did you say something? Why didn't you? Robert? I didn't want it to end. You assumed it would. Was I wrong? You shouldn't be here. I have a meeting. Someone stole a whole bunch of paintings in Lake Como. Interesting. Any leads? The next time I see you, I'm arresting you. And Ocean, and anybody else I recognize. Catherine looks great there, so does Brad. Very handsome couple, yeah. I think. Well, let's be honest, they pretty much look good most of the time. Yeah, they do. <laughs> they do. There's not a lot of movie magic involved with these folks. So here she's going to forge the 1077, which we thought shores up this idea of she's a... She's a thief. She's, she's... She lifts his phone, she forges a signature, and it gives Brad the line uh, on the tarmac of there's nothing back there but a forged 1077. So she's, you know, she basically commits a crime here. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And that helps us smooth the leap to get on this plane with me and... Right. I remember shooting this scene. We were going late. We had a lot of stuff to do. Again, I was just trying to figure out a way to do something, you know, to have the shots be um, interesting, but very much looking at my watch and knowing that I have a certain amount of time. We're going to be in the overtime. The crew's been here for quite a while. We had a lot of work to do in that warehouse. Oui, mais dans ce bleu, mon de gars, ils l'ont pris. Oui. Yes, of course, I do. Yes. My uh, blue dancers, my uh, de gars, mm -hmm. they took it unfortunately, and uh, I really. Do you like... have any enemies? Anybody out there who would feel wronged by you? Here's another scene where I was really having a tough time determining how I should shoot it and ended up employing an idea that I can't really defend because it's so pedestrian, which is a slow creep, too slow. So I'm shooting two cameras here going in... Side to side, uh, right? Yeah, going in circles. But I couldn't... It was difficult. This was a large space, that location. Tricky to light. I wanted them both to look good. And so part of the reason why I ended up going on a longer lens was because I needed to get a light in a specific position and the wider I was you just see it all the time how much longer than the sort of 27 standard oh word I'm on a this is probably a hundred in super 35 and it's because just on the edge of frame is the key light for her and for him right. when I drop back like this obviously I can hide it in other places but definitely that day I walked away feeling like eh, not too sure the only thing that it enabled me to do because I'd set up this slow movement, was come up with that transition from going through the pillar into a wall here. So at the end of the day, at least I got a little bit of a, something that made it look like we knew what we were doing. I'll email you the photographs. You don't have a pen? I'll just give you the names. Okay. Livingston Dale, male, Caucasian, 5'6". 
as she's reading off the names and weights and heights of these guys, I remember there was an idea for a joke I had that I was like, this is right on the edge of what I can do, which is I wanted to have her basically say, you know, get to Brad Pitt's height, and it would be like, you know, 6'2 or something, and she'd be like, you, he wishes, you know. Yeah, right. So uh, I sort of gingerly went to Brad and said, um, I've got this idea for a joke, and I, I just, I'm not sure, what do you think of this? He's like, awesome, do it. Um, oh, here's yeah. my height, you know. No, these guys are up, up for making anything. A movie, but. Yeah. Love this. Uh, this this was a fun idea. idea. This was this was an honor among thieves, wasn't it? Or did if we? If it wasn't an honor among thieves, it was in the very first discussions that we had about. Um, right. But I, I think it was. I think it was. In I think it was. I think there was. An, uh, I think this was in that original script. But it's a. Again, it's just fun to see these guys ground down to nothing. No, I think you're right. I think it wasn't in an honor among thieves. We were just talking about. It was a very early idea then. If it wasn't in honor among thieves, she's mean spirited. All right, how many espressos do you have? Five. Yeah, come on. Wait, now I think I remember when this came out. We talked about, we had concerns that George and Brad, that the Rusty Danny thing was sort of not, that we were sort of losing that thread, their friendship, and that this came out of that idea of like we and we're, the Danny we're due for, yeah, yeah. Because Rusty has the relationship with Isabel and we needed a Danny Talor. Yeah, but we were feeling like the movie needed a Rusty Danny thing here because they hadn't had anything in a long time and I think again trying to do more than one thing at once whenever you can but given its location he advised against it this tattoo line there's a funny story with it this was one of my favorite lines in the first draft of the script that I gave to you and wasn't an honor and Brad at one point had said oh I love that line I think it's my favorite line in the script and we had in an earlier incarnation a place where it made a lot of sense. Right. And that scene was cut. And right. We kept trying to jam it find in here and there. Brad it. and I kept conspiring, like, where can we find a place to stick it? Finally made it in there. It didn't work quite as well as it did, I think, in the in its initial incarnation. Right. But it was, you know, still funny. This is, again, a sequence that's unimaginable without David Holmes' score. You know, it was fun to shoot. We're sort of setting up a couple different things here. And you're basically just trying to, again, come up with one shot that leads into the next. I don't think we repeat any shots in this sequence. I remember being out on the steps of this museum, sort of sitting down, writing out what each of these shots was going to be, and knowing that I was going to run out of light if I didn't start shooting quickly. I remember it was really hot. This is in the middle of the summer. Yeah. Bring Saul back in. Yeah. I, uh, that was another How sort of story thing that came about because we couldn't have Carl in Europe for the whole shoot. Right. Uh, we could only have him for a limited time. And I think that's when we went back and decided in that early scene that he was going to say, I'm out. And right. then we were going to bring him back as a surprise. And he came over to Rome for a few days, but it was... Just for the final, uh, the finale, sort of. Yeah. But it was clear that he couldn't be there the whole time. And so sometimes, you know, these things have an impact on how you lay stuff out.
now in the third film, we go back to Vegas. We have a new antagonist, and I think that's really working well. But it wouldn't have worked well if we hadn't gone somewhere else for the second one. So this is, you know, this is the Empire Strikes Back of the. Well, there you go. Three Star Wars. Well, that was the best of the Star Wars, anyway. I thought so, <laughs> but the things about this movie that people I had issues with end up being, for me, the things that I like about it. First of all, I think visually it's the best of the three films. But the weirdness of it, the oddness of it, is the very thing that I like about it. It doesn't work the way movies like this usually work. Not at all. If it works. But I think if you watch it over and over again, which I encourage everybody to do. Everyone should go out and buy the DVD and, and send just it to keep all their friends no, and just keep watching it. They keep watching it until... <laughs> They like it. That's <laughs> if you didn't like it when you saw it, you just didn't watch it enough. Yeah. That's my line on that. Up twice in two weeks, all over his ego. It's the first decent evening we've had together, and I don't even know how long. All right, all right. Let's just stay on point here. Let's go over the list again. Who died and made you, Danny? No one. Ugh. I'm sorry, man. I'm like, my emotions are all over the place. No, I'm just snapping. really forceful because I was oh, trying to show good leadership. You're a good leader. Out. Come on, let's go. Let's go. Thanks. Um, all right, well, let's go over the list again. Uh, swinging Priest. Again, the great thing about working with guys like this is you can shoot this scene in a long master because they'll just nail it. As performers, you know that they're going to get it. They're going to get all the timing right. They're going to hit all the jokes. And in this case, again, I'm setting up visually a clue that's going to pay off later. When you see it in this shot, you're not sure what it means, which is the backpack. And it's only later on that you understand why it's so prominent at the end of this shot. With Tess and a bundle of joy, yeah. you've gone right out of your tree, my son. He's mad. It's madness. Yeah, it's crazy. It's Italian television crazy, and we're still one shot. No, no, but think about it. No, she can get near the egg during daylight hours with at least half the system shut down. Again, it's hard to come up with these sort of continuing obstacles to try and convince the audience that it's going to fail. They've got to be plausible. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Linus Caldwell Jr. Varsity, you are not following any of the procedures that Danny and I talked about if Terry Benedict shows up, which means something is wrong. What is wrong? Danny's fine. He's with Rusty. During this part of the... So now we're getting into the... The big... The uh... Julia as Julia <laughs> thing. And all I can say is there were a lot of nervous people around when this idea was being... Discussed and yes. executed. Yes. And I was you know, uh, being the Iago in your ear of saying, we have to do it. We have to. <laughs> there was some concern, I think, that it was going to open up a vortex that would swallow everyone and everything. Here's a shot, the sideways plane shot that Dwayne Manweller, the camera operator, came up with. I sent him out to the airport one day while we were shooting something else. And I just said, bring me back something I haven't seen before. This is your, please. And when the file, the Avid file showed up on my computer and I saw the frame clips in the bin, I immediately saw that shot right. and double clicked on it and pulled it up. And I thought, oh, he found it. That's a nice plane shot. So thank you, Dwayne. So Julia as Tess well, as Julia. Yeah. I mean, I think the concern is, is it going to tear the fabric of the movie apart and also her career with it. Right. And the justification that I used to the studio was that in point of fact, this is not a new idea at all and not destructive, that there's a very famous line situation 
in His Girl Friday when Cary Grant is telling someone to do a number on this guy that's waiting outside his office. And the guy says, well, what does he look like? And Cary Grant says, he looks like that actor. What's his name? Ralph Bellamy. And, of course, it is Ralph Bellamy. This is a movie that was made in 1940. That's a pretty crazy joke to throw in. It totally works. It's one of the biggest laughs in the movie. And it convinced me this can work. We could do a whole third act. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. We're just building on that idea. To complicate the mix, we found out after we'd written the idea and stuck it in that, that she Julia was pregnant. was actually pregnant, yeah. But, again, turned out to be, for our purposes, not a bad thing because then she has to play that she's pretending to be pregnant, which right. is a fun is funny, yeah. thing to do. But, you know, what can I say? There's some people for whom this idea, I think, was too much or... Too weird. Yeah, or too... Uh, I think the concern on the part of the studio was... It's too inside. It's too self-referential. This is going to antagonize more people than it's going to please. I don't know. I, I guess at the end of the day, it was just our gut feeling that it was um, that it was a fun idea. You know? well, we had to find something that justifies using Julia in the movie. And I always felt the princess idea, which is what you started with, was just you know that she was going to play a Romanov heir to the Romanov. That she happened to look like. Yeah, and uh, it just was not big enough. And we also, I think we both felt we just had to comment on the fact that there are more stars in this movie than, you know, practically any movie ever made. Than there are in heaven, as MGM used to say. (laughs) It's ridiculous at a certain point, and so you have to sort of undo it in your commentary of it. Like that. She's a movie star, for Christ's sake. She's not the Pope. Right. You know, or there's a line coming up that Linus says to Tess as Julia... Well, you know, of course you're insecure. I mean, you're an actress. They're all insecure. And it's like, that's the kind of thing you can get away with on this movie because these guys are willing to do it. Oh, Oh, that's hard. That's hard. Julia. My name is Teresa. No, si lo so. I just thought I saw a friend of mine. That's all, someone that I know. No. No, absolutely not. You can't turn off the pressure sensors. No. Well, she can't touch it. She's a movie star. She's not the Pope, for Christ's sake. Okay, you're from Smyrna, Georgia. You were born in 1967. Your your middle name is Fiona. Uh, You've got ten dogs. You've got seven horses. Your favorite color is the teeth. Tell everyone it's blue. You don't have more horses than dogs. I can't do this. I just can't. Tess, we're out of time Julia, please. Julia, okay? No, no, no. We understand you're feeling a little insecure. That is totally natural. That's good, actually. Because you're playing an actress. They're all insecure. I'm not insecure. I'm freaking out. Yes! I mean, I think everybody... Our various hats should be off to Julia because she totally... I remember talking to Carl Reiner after we shot this scene and him coming over and saying, I think she nailed this. Like he said, it's a weird thing to do. And he said, I felt like she really... If you're going to play it, she played it exactly the way it should be done. It was incredibly courageous for her to do. And I think she totally nailed it. And to, on top of that, be able to receive lines like, she's an actress, they're all insecure. You know, it's phenomenal. Another great set by Phil Messina, sort of duplicating Rome. Phil's built this set in discussion with me and my gaffer, Jim Planette. We set up a situation here where I'm not lighting anything. We've got lights on in the room. We have lights coming through the window. But I can point anywhere. I can look anywhere. Which you do a lot. Yeah, and it enables... Because if you've got a scene like this and you can let it play 
out in its full length and let people develop a rhythm and you're not constantly stopping them and say, I've got the first three lines, now I've got to do the next three lines and you have to hit this mark. If you can back up a little and let them use the space how they want to use it, I feel like you get better results. This is an example of me never wanting to say to anybody, you can't go there, stand there, and letting the scene play in its full length so that they get a rhythm going. You're not afraid to have lines delivered where people are, you know, sort of off camera or or, uh, on the side of their face. or. And, you know, what can I say? Bruce was a great sport about all this as well. No, no, no. Tell them what happened with Marcy, Glenn. There's a story? Yeah, always a story with Marcy. No, 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 Marcy, Marcy, (laughs) that that old thing. It's such a surprise. You should sit down. I'm I'm with the studio. Marcy's still very much in the picture, sir. Um, I just wanted to get you for a second. We're, we're, We're looking to come off this baby thing strong. You know, that... Little statue on the mantle starts smirking at you after a while. You know what I'm saying? Here's another example. That statue on the mantle piece starts to smirk after a while. You must know about that. And Bruce is like, actually, no, referring to the Oscar. I wish I could claim credit for writing that line. So relaxing. A mess. Anyway, Tallulah left her SpongeBob blanket in the red casita. Okay. So what I want to do here. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Thanks, Bruce. Is call Marcus. And have him get a hold of Louise so okay. we can make arrangements to send someone down there to get it. He's home now, right? Oh. Marcus. I need to, you know, I need to talk to Marcus. I, that's so funny. Mm-hmm. What a coincidence. This is the conceptual equivalent, I think, of a narrative loop within a loop within a flashback, which is her getting on the phone with herself. Right. And uh, that was another thing that I think at one point you were like, we can't do that. It's going to blow people's minds. Or somebody was. And I was, again, just like, it wasn't me. push I would, it I would never say way. we're going to blow somebody's mind. <laughs> And even if I did, I wouldn't say it in a, as a negative. But, uh, no, it seemed, to, again, we were constantly on the lookout for ways to keep Push it pushing to the, yeah. the idea. What? Hang it up and put it away. Do you have any idea? I feel like any time you can enter a scene zipping up your trousers, you should. Absolutely. In fact, I'd like to have an entire movie in which everybody does that all the time. Another great thing is both Julia and Bruce, like, here's the name of my assistant, here's how many horses I have, here's how many dogs. We just no, use they, their real lives. No, exactly. <laughs> the good news is they do know each other. They do know the names of all their what, entourage. What's the word these days? Posse. Posse. Yeah. I like that. So it just made all of this a lot easier. <laughs> I, I'm sorry to have jumped on you, Mr. Villas. You, you do very good acting. Very good acting. Thank you. Snack bar. Snack bar. Snack bar. <laughs> That was an ad lib. Yes, <laughs> Carl. Carl's always got good ad libs. I say fifty-fifty. Closer than that. Two to one, they don't make it to the museum. Five to one, they don't make it to the egg room. What? Uh, Again, we're coming up, showing the guys in jail, which was another set that we built, based on an existing jail in Italy. And this I, is great. We witch her. Oh right. We were aware of the fact that we've set up a situation in which two of our lead characters are not involved in the physical plot climax of the movie, which most people would tell you is a stupid thing to do. But we did it anyway. Not a lot of people did. That's pretty amazing. Well, no, the second that she doesn't talk to you in the restaurant, I knew something was... You figured that out, huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the movie still totally works for me, but... Great. Can we just... And the good news is we have Matt... Damon here getting to riff on The Sixth Sense, which was, you know, fun for him, I think. And then it gets repeated by the uh, museum museum guard about to come up, and Bruce is like, well, is everyone so damn smart that you could figure this out? Then how come it made 600 and whatever million dollars, you know, theatrical? Right. 
spoken exercise. That's a great shot of Catherine. Although it's hard not to get a great shot of Catherine. Yeah, how many movie stars of the level of, you know, Brad Pitt and George Clooney would say, yeah, that's cool, just put us in prison for the climax? Well, for better or worse, they were willing to acquiesce to our idea. But, I don't know, again, it seemed organic to us, and they didn't have a problem with it, so there you are. But I think it's, till you see the three films back-to-back, you really, the world of oceans just isn't, you need to really just watch them one after another, all the time. That's a so this is a plug for your new film and. Uh... Well, I just you know, these films are a prayer for peace. Ultimately, don't you think? <laughs> I do. Okay. Friends didn't tell you what it was. No. That's when you figured it out. Yeah, but the movie was still very enjoyable for me. Okay. Nice. Everybody's so freaking smart. How come the movie did six hundred seventy-five million dollars worldwide? Theatrical. Julia. Doctor, doctor, you might want to call the rice patty now. Hmm. Seal off the museum. Everybody in or out. This whole museum interior that we're watching, all of these rooms built by Phil Messina on a soundstage. I remember we had quite a few people coming by to look at it. Only to be surpassed by the set he built for 13. For 13, the casino, yes. You know, you build a set like this, and it's always sad to think they're going to knock it down. Like that's, It's up for three weeks. They work on it for months and months and months. They put it up, it's up for three weeks, and then they tear it down, and it never exists again. It's, well, I have a couple of those papier-mâché uh, Rodin sculptures. Uh, in your my, uh, bathroom. In my bathroom, yeah. <laughs> I have a big bathroom. Yeah. I don't want to be an annoying fan or anything like that, but my boyfriend is such a huge fan. Oh, that's a huge great. Fan, and I can't this was really fun to come up with ways that Catherine could bust, bust her. Yes. Yeah. Robert Ryan. <laughs> uh, Julie is left-handed, by the way. <laughs> Carl, great ad lib by Carl. Again, this is a situation where I'm going handheld and I'm sort of stepping back a bit because to me this is all about the timing of all of these lines and therefore again i want them to be able to move go anywhere they want talk the way they want not so you're on a longer lens and you're yeah i'm backing up a little and just letting things run in essence it's how it sounds to me that's a scene where it's got to sound the right way and that's the priority everyone's running a little late and uh, i was wondering if you could make it at 130 instead i knew it Shame. I don't think we've met. Bruce. Italian cops really do dress that way. Yes, they do. <laughs> in case you were thinking that we're twisting reality, they're kind of stylish. It's another great uh, music cue, I think. Yeah, this is one that David found that we ended up buying. Oh, really? It, yeah. I don't know where he finds it. I, th- I get I the impression. This was stealing from him. <laughs> it's quite possible. David travels the world, I think, going into record stores and finding, you know, he's the guy that no matter how many vinyl pieces you've got in your store, he's going to look at every one of them. And I, he literally goes on these trips shopping for stuff. And he always comes back with the goods. That's all I can say.
we're coming up to now, the Linus's mom thing. This is really hard because, again, everybody's sort of antenna are up because they know something's... We're having to work really, 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 really hard to make you think this woman is legitimate because everybody's on guard here. Now, I haven't done a straw poll to figure out how many people knew that something was up and if they did, if they knew exactly what was up. But I remember thinking this is... We got to sweat to make her... I mean, the good news is Cherry Jones is fantastic and you buy her as a cop well and there's the scene where she interrogates her own son and she right. does it in a way where you're like oh well she must be real because she's just really busting on this yeah. she picks him out of this crowd right here right. and again i remember thinking i was trying to come up with a way to sort of show everyone and then isolate matt so i'm in an over and then i get rid of everybody mm. um, as i slide across yeah that one the look on Matt's face. So, you know... It's, it's not exactly Jason Bourne in uh, this... Uh... <laughs> no, he doesn't have quite that skill set. But anyway, I just remember being worried that... I knew this was a tricky one. It's a tricky sleight of hand. I mean, the con, I would say at this point, is unbelievably complicated. And then when you layer in that Lamarck knew where the egg was all along, and Lamarck has helped them earlier on, that they went from that train station to Paris where they met Lamarck, who said, okay, here's when the egg is leaving, that they'd stolen the egg already. I mean, that's where it just gets unbelievably complicated. But it does work. We tied off everything. And it's certainly, this is always the issue. I certainly feel like I'm the audience. This is the kind of movie that I love. This is the kind of movie that I go to on a Friday when it opens, because I love caper films. I just, they're one of my favorite types of film. So I'm trying to go off of what I want to see when I go see one of those movies. It's quite possible that I like things. I'm, I'm less a person that wants to see everything tied up in a bow as much as I like to... These movies are kind of like parties to me, and I just... I'm trying to set up a party that looks like you'd want to attend at the end of the day. Also, it's awfully hard to, if you follow the conventional structures for a heist movie it becomes awfully hard to do something new right you did it stylistically in 11 you know here it's much more it's stylistic and plot here That last scene was a good opportunity for me to discuss the zoom lens, which is, to my mind, an absolutely critical part of the Ocean's movies. I use it quite a bit in Ocean's 13 as well. And again, it's a tool that was abused in the 60s and 70s. I love the zoom. I feel like if you're, again, you can use it in an Ocean's movie because they're not serious movies. I think it's very hard to use the zoom in a noticeable way in a drama because it's such a transparent effect. Right. In the Ocean's movies, I feel like any time you can use it, you should think about using it. So I tend to use it a lot. Blew the meat with Matsui. Matsui? Let me guess. He pulled a loss in translation on you. 
Oh, that's his idea of fun for first timers. How do I not see these things? We had a version of the script in which it was his dad, and we rewrote it. We rewrote it and made it his mom. I just remembered that. I think it's better with his mom because now, well, I can't. I'm not gonna. I'm mom not gonna had to come bail you out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it's Matt's willingness to be the rube. Every time with him, it's like it's like a it's like a that is what keeps me in the dark. And that that she is really she really uh, she him. belted him. I told her, don't hold back. <laughs> it's for ruining our second third anniversary. We've got great cooperation from everybody in Italy. We're driving through streets of Rome here. We're kind of low impact here. We've got a car in front of us and one behind us just to make sure nobody um, runs into them. But I remember we did, I don't know, three takes of this. I wanted to do it in a single take. And we did, yeah, I think three takes. Two magazines, 200, 400-foot magazines. I'm in the front seat here with the camera on my knee. I felt bad, of course, asking for another one because I knew George was going to get slapped around. But he, but not he, too bad. Yeah, he never <laughs> complained. Forgive me. It's Bruce Willis now. Ah. Now we're getting closer to tying up the Isabel story. Now we'll get into the joke that Brad played on George. Absolutely. Because we're, we're coming up on this scene. It all started when we were shooting in Paris, the conversation with Lamarck on the balcony. George and Brad, in order to maintain a certain level of emotional realism, began to refer to each other that day in their character names so that they would never have to not be Danny and not be Rusty. They just felt they could take the whole movie up to another level if they stayed in character all day. So before the take, they would say to each other, good luck, Danny, good luck, Rusty. This was on our way to shoot the Italy portion of the film. Brad decided it would be a good idea if there was an attachment to the first day's call sheet in Italy, in Italian, in which the crew was instructed to always refer to George as Danny, and whenever possible, not to engage him in any sort of conversation. Uh, or so, eye contact. Or eye contact, so that he could perform to the standards that we all demand. So this was accomplished with the help of Greg, R.A.D. And nothing happened for a while until one day Vincent Cassell overheard two of the Italian crew members talking about this and how weird they thought it was that George only wanted to be referred to as Danny. Very quickly, this news reached George. And because George has a house in Italy and has, you know, is someone who in Italy is viewed as a son of sorts, you know, because he lives there and spends a lot of time there. As soon as he found out, all of us understood, at some point, Brad Pitt is going to be the victim of one of the most intense practical jokes of all time. Because the first thing is, George is very, 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 very patient. And he will wait. It could take 10 years. Yeah, he will when, get him. He will get him. When it happens, it's going to be ugly. Yeah. It's going to be really ugly. And, and, that, Brad, uh, and Brad, I'm sure, has probably forgotten about it. I mean, that's the... George will wait long enough to where you've forgotten about it, and then 
you're going to – I don't know what's going to happen to him. It's going to be serious. I, I was there when George came in and Brad's like, I'm dead. I know I'm dead. I don't care. It was worth it. <laughs> well, I hope he's right. Because it was, it was at least a week it was of a week. the Italian crew averting their eyes and George being like, what, what, why does everyone treat me like this? Because he's like such a man of the people. Yeah, too. yeah. No, he's always on set. He knows everybody's name. It was a good one. It was a good one. Oh, and oh, and I forgot what made it even better. It got picked up by the paper. <laughs> An Italian paper printed that George had made this request. It was the Andromeda strain practical <laughs> joke. It just kept mushrooming. It was pretty brutal. Bentornato, signore. Grazie. Questo mettono in galleria. Ah, i suoi ospiti sono in veranda. Ospiti? Quali ospiti? Ma dai. No. Really? No. That'd be horrible. It's hard, you know, for dinners. <laughs> well, you must have very good contacts. I hear it usually takes days to buy your way out. Tess, this is Francois Toulour. Madame Ocean, at last. Enchanté. Hello. She's French. Shouldn't you be somewhere else by now, like uh, out of Mongolia, maybe? Well, before we get to that, we just wanted to ask you one question. What is that? How'd you do it? Oh, so that's why you came. You want to know. I remember this scene only because I wanted very much to have the whole thing take place at this specific time of night, this sort of twilight. So we had to shoot Vincent's side on one evening, and then we had to shoot George and Julia on the next evening. I tried to tie it together with that opening shot where I start on them and I bring Talur around and you sort of see them all in the same frame and you'll right. notice from that point on I'm in a I'm in Back a and forth. in reverses because I'm shooting on two different days. Yeah. It's only stressful because you've got a window of in this case 25 minutes. This um, is magic hour. Yeah. And so you're going to get three takes probably. And you're trying to balance. You don't want to just lock the camera down completely, but you're certainly understanding that any kind of movement or technical complication that you add to the shot is going to increase your chance of screwing up the take and having the light dump and you're out of there. The good news is within 30 minutes, for better or worse, the scene's over. You can't shoot anymore. The bad news is you've got 30 minutes. But I think at the end of the day... And as the light's changing, you're sort of trying, you know, Jim Planet, the gaffer and I are sort of trying to balance the indoor light because as the light's dumping outside, you're having to open up, which means you've got to diminish the light inside so that the balance is never changing. And again, you're doing this knowing every second is killing you to lose. So those are fun days. That last scene is, and this is Vincent, explaining how he stole the egg, which of course isn't the real egg. Right. Because they stole it. But he doesn't know that. The letter feels well.
talk about the fact that Vincent was the one who came up with this idea of this form of dance, which is called capoeira, that he had seen before and that he knew some guys that were into it. And so he'd been working with these guys for weeks and weeks to learn these moves and come up with this little piece of choreography. The fruitiness of it was what I really like about it. I think it's... The music's perfect for it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so. David Holmes hated this piece of music. I explained to David, I go, it has to be a piece of music that Talur would like. Yeah. It doesn't have to be something you would like. He was so unhappy. But anyway, Vincent learned... There's only one shot in here that isn't Vincent, and it's when the guy does the backflip off of one of the things. But every other shot in here he did, including the penultimate shot in the sequence where he jumped on a... The shot coming up here. He ran toward us, jumped on a... What do you call it? A springboard and did a flip and landed in front of the camera. Like, I couldn't do that if you put a shotgun in my mouth. And he did it without a problem. It's hard to do a capoeira with a shotgun in your mouth, actually, I hear, but... It's dangerous. More than hard, dangerous. Again, that's a, I think that scene is a taste scene. It works for some people. Like uh, I said, I I, <laughs> my whole thing is, like, you're supposed to sort of laugh. You know, it's not... It's supposed to be sort of silly but fun. It's supposed to be Euro trash. Yeah, yeah. The money. What money? The money that you agreed to pay Benedict if we won. We're under a deadline. No, 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 no. You don't understand. You didn't win. That to me, you know, Vincent in a white suit, Twilight in a balcony on Lake Como. That's a nice, that's a nice image. He looks great. He is sort of Tallur-like. He speaks at least four languages. Mm -hmm. Physically, he can do anything. Like, he could be a stunt guy. He's married to one of the He's most married to women Monica Bellucci. He has a beautiful child. He kind of is Tallur. Yeah. Everybody loved him on the show. Like, he fit right into the group seamlessly. He was great. That means that you spoke to the market. He spoke to the mark. Here he's realizing that he was scammed. Yes, here we right go. Another another nutty... Another loop within a loop. Loop within a loop. Uh, so they actually were going to they Paris. They were going to Paris. Where they met. This is where the practical joke started. We're shooting here. This balcony is the Australian embassy in Paris. The Eiffel Tower is in Brad's glasses here. It's very, very close to this balcony. Standing on the balcony, you feel like you could reach out and touch the Eiffel Tower. Being a contrarian, I decided that I didn't want to actually show there the Eiffel right Tower. There. Yeah, there it is in Brad's. I couldn't believe it's right you at, didn't When you look at Albert Finney here, it is immediately to our right, and it's gigantic. It's huge. And everybody was a little surprised that it didn't end up in any shots. But I just thought, of course, it's Paris. You don't have to show the Eiffel Tower. Jeez. And the scene that's coming up, the way of shooting it is based on there are these group of filmmakers that Vincent works with in Paris, these young guys that make these crazy films. And they're very, very active and very funny. And they're all shot with these super wide angle lenses. And they have like crazy action sequences in them. Uh, so this is a super wide angle. Yeah, this is like a nine millimeter, I think. It's really, really wide. Is it? It's film, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's just set, desaturated down. To I just, yeah, we just oh. took the color out in the DI. So Vincent, when I was asking him, this is early during prep when we were shooting the Monte Carlo stuff, and I said, what have you been up to? And he said, oh, I've been working with these young guys. They're really fun. And he gave me some DVDs to look at. And I really liked them, and I was watching them, and I thought, oh, this is how we should do the train sequence it needs because you're in such a tight spot anyway yeah and it need you know it needs something and this isn't a lens that i've used on these films 
before. And I wanted it to be mobile. I wanted it to be really active. So I stole that from these guys. They made a feature with Vincent called Chitan, S-H-E-I-T-A-N. It's like a very, very strange horror movie. It's really, really interesting. It's got amazing visual stuff in it. These guys are very talented. So this is just part of, to me, the reason that Vincent was the right guy to hire. Because if I don't hire Vincent, then there's no... Capoeira, and there's not an interesting way for Tallur to get across the grid, and I never see these films made by these friends of his, and I never figure out how this sequence should be, you know. Good decisions create solutions for other problems. It's been my experience. walking out with the real egg in that bag. Which now we understand why we've been seeing this bag so much, in theory, if you're still watching the movie. (laughs) And I stole the replica? Your paintings are in a high-security warehouse. Again, at this point, you can see where the light is. I'm totally, you know, I've got got the sweats here because we're, we're about... Please get it, Yeah, we're about two minutes away from the whole thing just going away. And this was um, a fun little piece where he where he knows the code before where where his paintings are. He's the best. Good. Mm-hmm. How'd you do that? Well, I told you one story tonight. There's a shot coming up of Vincent, you know, just standing at the balcony, and in one of the takes, he knocks the champagne glass off the railing. But I decided that it was better just to have him sit there and not and swallow his anger right here i've set up the shot earlier we've got it all marked we've got a tripod sitting there we're waiting running down yeah we're running (laughs) we finished the scene we run down there throw the camera on and we get one shot before it's too dark we're in sicily now this amazing uh location that we found at the edge of what a beautiful part of the, the world. ocean yeah it's really spectacular the only other thing we shot there was jerry weintraub on the boat giving the crew up that's right accidentally to uh we went out we, we jumped in a boat and went out and shot that stuff it's one of the things that you learn to do if at all possible which is take advantage if you've got a location that you're going to you know, figuring out Everything else you can shoot there, how to make a double for something else. You're not being efficient if you're going to a location and only using it for one thing. Oh, my God. This is basically the emotional climax of the movie, and I guess where you realize it's really Catherine's movie. Yes. I don't think you told anybody else that when you were making it. Uh, no, well, I told her that. But we've <laughs> yeah. got an insert coming up. I just love this because it's a cheat. Shot coming up, shot in Burbank of uh, Brad putting the bag down. Again, this is of interest to no one except me because I just, I'm fascinated by what you can get away with. Mm. And we spent a lot of time sort of massaging it to make it look right. But I don't know why these things have such uh, 
I feel that when I see the shot, I feel the way Catherine feels there. Mm. Very emotional. If you can have Albert Finney in a movie, I highly recommend it. Always a plus. Here we go. I've built it up. Watch this. And we're now in Burbank. That's Burbank. Don't you love that? I do. I'm, I'm giving away the story here. You, you tricked me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'd forgotten that, actually. So now we're, we're getting to the point where finally they've been failing for two hours and things are finally starting to, for the last two minutes of the movie. They get Vincent and because they have, Tiller has to pay the money. Yep. And Brad gets his woman back just like George got his woman back in exactly. the Exactly. I don't trust you, Ruben, and I don't trust Ocean. If it's good, we're done. These grudges, they're awful. Nobody wins. Danny's had enough of this, Michigas. And the competition, it's worse than our business. As we know, there is going to be another interaction with Terry Benedict in the third film. All part of the grand design. you got to have Andy in there. When you have characters of a certain type, especially if you have antagonists that have a certain sort of level of ego, there's a lot of, they're kind of endless possibilities, really, because it, it's all about appealing to their vanity. Well, that's what's motivating Talor, and that's definitely what's motivating Benedict as well, even more than the fact that he lost the money. Yeah. The future. I pay professionals to do that, and even they get it wrong sometimes. I can't say that nobody's ever going to try to rob from you again, but I can say this, if, God forbid, anything does happen to you, we will not be involved. It should be very obvious here that we're setting up something else, a little open ending there with Tallur. These are scenes, again, that are tricky when you're supposed to... It's supposed to be a scene in which people are enjoying themselves, and there's nothing harder. So what I ended up doing here was, again, inviting everybody in, letting them play the scene out without any real instruction. The only thing that I contributed was the order in which they would arrive. Mm. Other than that, I told them nothing. I said, here's the deal. You guys play every Monday night and go for it. And then we just shot the hell out of it. But again, this is a situation where I just we just played this out a half dozen times and I chased him around the room with the 27 and just got what I could get. Sacrificing this is all about the vibe more than it is about the cleanliness of the shot. So I'm just... The good news is they all know each other, they all like each other, and they can convincingly set up a situation where they're having fun. And it's up to me to determine... That's... Catherine fell. Real. Yeah. And I thought that was... When I saw that frame, I just thought, that's a frame that's, to me, a classic Ocean's feeling. Is somebody just laughing uncontrollably? That, right. to me, is, you know, the vibe of the movie. And then after everybody left... I walked around the room with a viewfinder and shot this little credit sequence because I just liked the room and the, the space. So, again, just trying to milk every film scene set for everything that I can milk it for. If only you could just put them away and uh, bring them out when you needed them later. I know, I know. So, I'm trying to remember how many official 
drafts we did. We were in the 20s. I know we there were no more. We, well, we broke the final draft program. Yes. I broke the final draft program. Yes. We had so many revisions that it just crashed. And also, I think we we had more revisions than there are different colors of paper. We, oh, ended, we were into triple. We were into triple color. Triple pink or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was funny. The good news was on this, I think more than almost any other movie I've worked on, we worked on it while we were doing it. Yeah. The result being that when we were done, we were really done. We'd gotten to the end of the shoot and shot everything we that we really could think reshoot. Of. We were shot no. inside the schedule, but I mean, no. Once we were done, we were kind of done, and we had to be because we had a twelve-week post-production. From the time we wrapped, the movie was going to be in a theater in twelve weeks, so we had to have our ducks in a row, so to speak. If you've got a twelve-week post, you want Steven Soderbergh as your director because you're editing at night. You're sort of rough edit and sending it on, saying something like this, right? And then you have Steven Steven Marioni to sort out all your problems. Steven Marioni, for those of you who don't look at credits or watch the Oscars, is a uh, very talented editor. He's cut the Three Oceans films for us, and he also cut Traffic. He knows his way around a story, for sure. I often find myself in a situation where I'm dumping a certain volume of footage in his lap and saying, please sort this out. Here's what I was thinking, but try and sort this out. I think... Most directors would tell you that at the end of the day, it's all about editing. It's just all about editing. And I certainly believe that. I find that uh, there are films that I've cut myself and there are films that I've used editors on. And I think it kind of depends on what you're after. The films that I've cut myself, I guess I felt on a micro level, I had something very specific in mind and it would be quicker to just do that myself and then show the result to some friends to see if the macro is working. And then there are films like Oceans where even on the micro level, on a shot-to-shot, scene-to-scene basis, I'm very anxious to have the input of an editor, of another set of eyes, before anything has been put together. So for me, it's just a, it depends on the movie. Thank you, George. Thank you, Stephen.